This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. On the programme this week, more on the media's big bid to persuade the government to get Google and Facebook to pay them for news by changing the law. We hear from an expert who says there might be a better way. And as the biggest pop star on the planet packs out huge arenas in Australia, our media here have milked Kiwi Swifty's anger over missing out. Taylor Swift, noise, 10.30, ah, ah, oh, I don't want to live. I didn't understand the whole thing. I didn't get the Swifty, Tay-Tay, rah-rah business. But first, the Prime Minister got the media's attention last weekend when he said that the state of the nation was fragile. Since then, he's announced a reset of welfare and a rejig of immigration. But how did the media explain what's at stake? We climbed Everest. You know, we split the atom. We charted Walker across the ocean to come here. And we're blasting off into space to compete with the very best people in the world. So I think we're also, though, a country that is big enough and smart enough to face up to reality when we need to as well. That was Prime Minister Christopher Luxon in his State of the Nation speech that he delivered last Sunday, reflecting on the reflected glory we all get from our most intrepid and most famous predecessors. And he went on to describe Kiwis today as resourceful, reasonable and resilient, yet the country as a whole as fragile and lacking lost mojo. But the pundits mostly agreed that the new Prime Minister had found his mojo with his speech. In the Post on Monday, for example, Stuff's Andrea Vance said this. Yesterday's speech was good. Better still was the presentation. Luxon sounded like a normal person. And that made the paper's front page under the headline, Who Deprogrammed Luxon? The same day, business desk's Patrick Smelly was also wondering. With his reputation developing as a tone-deaf corporate gabbler, said Smelly, Christopher Luxon has looked for a while like a man in need of a decent speechwriter. His State of the Nation speech suggests either one has been found or Luxon is starting to find his voice as Prime Minister. Or possibly both. And while Patrick Smelly said that Christopher Luxon had come across as a disciplined and demanding taskmaster in that speech, he also said Luxon seemed like a bit of a scold when he said things like he would not apologise for tough love. On One News last Monday, TVNZ's Mikey Sherman, though, didn't see any of that as a big deal. Certainly yesterday's State of the Nation speech by Christopher Luxon was him giving the country a bit of a boot up the backside, and let's be honest, we all need that from time to time. But the thing is, though, not everyone was feeling that boot in the backside. On News Talk ZB the same day, afternoon host Andrew Dickens was less impressed with what he called blame game politics. We got a lot of talk about beneficiaries, and they were told that the free ride was over. And then in the end, there was an admission to reporters that the government is yet to explain how it would address and finance the solution to our woes. And reporters did also do their best after the post-Cabinet press conference that day as well, challenging old international research on welfare dependency that was cited by the government rather than stuff that our own ministry had put together about this country. There's two sets of research that give different messages, um, but the statistics... That is the most, the strongest empirical evidence. But how? 70,000 70, more people on the job seeker benefit at the same time that we've seen a 58% reduction in the use of sanctions. That's evidence enough for me to be deeply worried about the number of New Zealanders not in work today uh, that we could be supporting to be 
uh, a life of greater choice and opportunity through work. I'm talking yep. specifically yeah. it's about uh, principle, about principles that you have an obligation. It should be statistics, not principles. No, 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 it's about, no, it is about principles because actually we have an obligation here in New Zealand to make sure that you're holding your end up. And having heard that, journalist Bernard Hickey published Stats NZ data showing that the proportion of 15 to 24-year-olds in work had actually steadily risen between 2017 and 2023, even among those with disabilities. And in her weekly politics newsletter on Tuesday, the Herald's Audrey Young pointed out information in Louise Upston's press statement that seemed to pass the media by. Of almost 190,000 people currently on job seeker benefits, the Ministry for Social Development only has strong visibility over about 60,000 of them who are receiving case management, and extending that oversight to the other two-thirds of cases to see if they can work or if sanctions need to be applied to them, well, that would be a big ask for a ministry which, just like all the rest of the public service, has cut its budget. Now, while the Prime Minister was at pains to point out that this was about principles and sound finance as well, the Herald's political editor, Claire Trevet, said this. Choosing to make it the centrepiece of the post-Cabinet press conference was more about pure political theatre. But the fact it was largely theatre does not mean it's not good politics. But good politics for the National Party, Claire Trevet could have added. In this week's Midweek Media Watch, Hayden Donnell took a look at that, as well as coverage of the latest TVNZ opinion poll and the event that really rocked politics and the Pacifica community, the sudden and shocking death of MP and advocate Ephesa Collins, just 49 years into a remarkable life. That and plenty more on Midweek Media Watch on Nights with Emile Donovan last Wednesday. If you missed it, you'll find it on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or available for free wherever you get your podcasts. Now, on Tuesday this week, the Herald's Claire Trevet also pointed out that this week's instructions on benefit sanction enforcement were really just a stopgap measure before National brings in its own welfare regime towards the end of this year. But by Tuesday, the media had framed all this as a welfare reset, much as the government might have hoped. And fully seven days before the State of the Nation speech signalled tough love and sanctions to come, Jack Tame was pressing the Welfare Minister Louise Upston about this on the Q&A show and pushing for evidence that sanctions would actually work and whether she's seen the findings which cast doubt on that. You've read the report from the Welfare Expert Advisory Group? Yes, Quote, there is little evidence in support of using obligations and sanctions to change behaviour. Rather, there's research indicating they compound social harm and disconnectedness. What did that report get wrong? Yeah, so there's a range of research and, and I acknowledge that. Um, what, what did but, they get wrong about that? Well, as I say, there's a, there's a range of views around mm. uh, consequences. So what, did, but what was you, wrong about that, about that line from the Welfare Expert I'm, I'm not group. saying it's wrong. It's a ra- there's a range of views. So you agree with them that, that, that there's little evidence in support of sanctions? There's a range of views. They have one view. My view, Jack, is mm. very clear. We have seen an absolute blowing out of welfare dependency. Mm. And what has been cast as a reset was initially just a one and a half page letter urging the Ministry for Social Development's chief executive to deploy more benefit sanctions and an accompanying statement. I'm not prepared to accept the welfare system we inherited where work-ready job seekers are forecast to spend an average of 13 years on a benefit and teenagers could become trapped on welfare for 24 years of their working lives. And those alarming numbers were echoed the next day by the Prime Minister on TVNZ's breakfast show.
Now the average time that someone's on a job seeker unemployment benefit is now risen from 10 years to 13 years. And if you think about youth payments and people on youth benefits, that they're now on average going to be on welfare for 24 years. So if you're a young person who gets on welfare and the average time that you're now on welfare is 24 years, you're talking about someone getting to the age of 40 before they actually get their first job. So we have a broken system. But it isn't quite right that the average time someone's on a job seeker benefit is 13 years. That alarming stat isn't official. It's from a forecast by consultants about what might happen if current policies and social conditions persist. And these forecasts have been in the public domain since the start of the month, thanks to the New Zealand Herald, investigative reporter Alex Spence and the Official Information Act. Now, previously, these annual reports were published annually on the website of the Ministry for Social Development until Labour took over in 2017, and they dropped out of sight and out of mind for the media. But, according to the Herald, the most recent report from the actuaries at Taylor Fry also said that the estimates are skewed by a growing minority of beneficiaries staying on welfare for a very long time. For example, 19,000 people receiving sole parent support and about 500 young people expected to be on income support for almost the rest of their working lives. Now, as we heard earlier, both Louise Upston and the Prime Minister said, when challenged by the media, that the swollen ranks of unemployed on benefits since 2017 was all the evidence they need. And this was how the Prime Minister put those numbers in his State of the Nation speech last weekend. And if we look at welfare... There are 70,000 more people on a job seeker unemployment benefit today than there were in 2017. And that's like adding every man, woman and child in Napier onto the job seeker benefit in just six years. But while a Napier's worth of new beneficiaries was the major focus of his speech, not so another city's worth of new citizens, described by TVNZ's Jack Tame this way last Monday. Dunedin. In 2023, new migrants increased New Zealand's population by roughly the same size as Aote Porti. And that same day for News Hub, Infometrics economist Brad Olson. Adding, I think, uh, a topaz worth of people every second month or so, uh, we've been seeing that's uh, contributed to the largest population gain that New Zealand has ever seen uh, since the end of the Second World War. Those record immigration stats led the News Hub at Six Bulletin last weekend. New Zealand's population over the second half of last year grew at its fastest rate since 1946. The next night, TVNZ reported that the difference between births and deaths was now the lowest it's been since then as well. There were just over 19,000 more births than deaths last year. And you have to go back to 1943 in the middle of the Second World War for a lower rate. And that just goes to show that population growth is much more complicated than just who's coming and who's going in any given year. Not for nothing was an edition of the detail all about the record immigration stats last year entitled Our Messy Migration. And in it, RNZ business editor Giles Beckford said this. There's little coherence about immigration policy, I would think. Changing criteria for how we attract high net worth individuals and entrepreneurs here. Uh, at one stage we tighten it up, you know, more recently we've loosened it a wee bit, or we go and create another category. Some people would suggest and have argued in the past that we actually don't need an immigration policy, we need a population policy. A lot of it is knee-jerk, it is short-termism, the, the thinking that goes behind it, I think, is not connected. Now, the point of that episode of The Detail last October was that the surging immigration figures had barely been mentioned in the election campaign at that time. 
But last Sunday, TVNZ's Q&A show did zero in on the new record figures just out with the Minister, Erica Stanford. They were unsustainable, she said, and there's going to have to be a reset here too. So net migration for the calendar year, 126,000 people. Is that a sustainable number? That's not a sustainable number. But I think you need to look at it in the broader context. And that included COVID closures, disrupting and delaying demand, and people who've come on short-term visas who will leave the country but haven't yet, Erica Stanford went on to say. And then she said this. Back to Mm. 2022, the RBNZ and Adrian Orr were saying, we've got a supply problem, we desperately need workers. Mm. And they put a lot of pressure on the government who basically closed their eyes and opened the doors with a knee-jerk reaction. And we are where we are because of that. But on the Herald's daily podcast front page last Tuesday... That struck the Herald's business editor, Liam Dan, as ironic. It's ironic that Labour was uh, came in sort of on a tightening up policy and ended up really loose. And during that tight period, National was crying out for more workers and saying they needed to loosen up. And now you've got National saying, um, well, we're going to tighten it all up. And, and you know, they'll, they'll say um, smart things about it. They'll say we want a more nuanced setting, more reactive and more able to, to adjust and... Um, All these things are good and easy to say, but as I mentioned, it's very difficult. Well, a bit of bipartisanship probably would go a long way. But as Scoop's Gordon Campbell pointed out, before the election last year, National cited increased immigration visa charges as a source of revenue, which could help fund the tax cuts they campaigned on, along with foreign house buyers and taxing online gambling. Its election manifesto also called for new visas for graduates of top universities and global tech companies and even a one-year digital nomad visa with options for work and residence after that. And on top of that, five-year multiple entry visas for migrants, parents and grandparents was in the manifesto with options to renew for a further five years and expanded international student work rights was in the education policy. And for its part, the ACT Party wanted to remove the work-to-residence category of the Immigration Green List, replace the accredited employer work visa scheme with demand-based pricing, and remove the cap altogether on resident visas for parents. And it was only the Auckland-based Indian Weekender newspaper reminding its readers this past week how investigative journalists late last year exposed profiteers, employers and agents bringing in migrants who ended up living in terrible circumstances without work and who were, in Indian Weekender's words, proving a burden on the economy. Now in that long interview on TVNZ's Q&A show last weekend, the Minister Erica Stanford admitted that much has yet to be thought through for this immigration rebalancing, but... I've sent my officials away to start work on that. Give us a planning framework, Mm. understand what our absorptive capacity is and make sure that uh, our hospitals, our schools, our infrastructure are working with immigration so that we have better long-term planning. And that does sound sensible. But if today's surge is the biggest since the end of World War II, well, how did we do absorptive capacity back then? Well, in his daily publication, The Kaka, financial journalist Bernard Hickey pointed out the governments back then planned for population growth of about 2% a year by putting about 5 to 10% of GDP on infrastructure each year. But in the 1980s and 90s, Bernard Hickey said that fell back as tax rates were cut on the assumption of low to no population growth. Land taxes, estate duties and taxes on capital gains were also dropped. Bernard Hickey also pointed out that since 2004, our population has grown at a rate only a little lower than the previous population baby boom time between 1947 and 1967. 
yet our infrastructure investment in the last 20 years has been less than half the rate of the baby boom years, hence the deficit that's a part of the state of the nation today. This month, the briefing to the incoming Immigration Minister Erica Stanford said that a Productivity Commission inquiry into immigration back in 2022 had made all this clear. But the Productivity Commission is set to be scrapped as part of the new coalition's first 100-day achievements, though that one was not one of the ones listed by the Prime Minister in his State of the Nation speech last weekend. Last weekend here on Media Watch, we heard how the nation's news media publishers pitched up in Parliament to make a pitch to MPs to pass the Fair Digital News Bargaining Bill, legislation left behind by the Labour government that would effectively compel big tech companies who carry their news online to pay them for it. First up at the committee, and one of the most compelling, was the managing editor of the Ashburton Guardian, Daryl Holden. Digital internet companies such as Google, Meta, which runs Facebook and Instagram and Microsoft, are creaming it at the expense of every New Zealand media company, who in many ways are slowly but surely leading to death. That's because those internet giants are using and sharing news produced by New Zealand media organisations on their mega digital platforms at zero cost to themselves. Now, in years gone by, the news publishers were pretty happy with the likes of Facebook and Google got their stuff in front of the eyeballs of an unlimited online audience. But in recent years, the tech titans have cornered the market in the ad revenues, which used to be rivers of gold for the news media. On Media Watch last week, the News Publishers Association's Andrew Holden, no relation of Daryl from Ashburton, told Media Watch it works like this. The vast majority of people will go onto Google or Bing and they'll say Cyclone Gabrielle search, and it might, or they might even write in stuff because they want to go to the stuff website, but they're going to it via Google. And that gives Google the opportunity to make money out of that, clip the ticket long before you get anywhere near the Stuff website. But with that in mind, you do wonder why Stuff recently relaunched its free news website without an internal search function. And likewise, it's three new local sites for subscribers of The Press, The Post and The Waikato Times. That virtually forces the users off Stuff's own sites and onto Google to find anything from the archive. Anyhow, rapid technological advances are not making the media's prospects any better. As Stuff's owner Sinead Boucher pointed out in Parliament last week, AI-powered search that Google is working on now might mean that users seeking news might never end up on Stuff's site at all, a development that prompted some in the US recently to warn that it could precipitate an extinction-level event for the news media as we know them. Now, last week, the media minister, Melissa Lee, told reporters that AI advances were one reason that she doesn't support the bill in its current form, but she's declined to talk to Media Watch about the bill or her government's plans for the media. However, on News Talk ZB last Tuesday, Mike Hosking asked the Prime Minister about it. No, we didn't support the bill in its current form, and the reason is that I just think media companies can do their own individual deals um, with those tech platforms. In fact, as your your umbrella organisation has and others have as well. Well, the well-briefed Prime Minister was right that some media companies here have indeed done deals. Google, for example, has done several individual deals to carry local publishers' news in its own service, Google News Showcase, and that includes Daryl Holden's Ashburton Guardian. But here's what Daryl told the committee about that deal last week. But those last only up to five years. And as far as the Guardian is concerned, we accepted the deal from a position of no strength. The money we are paid by Google annually is a pittance. 
I'm almost embarrassed to say how much we get because it would not be enough to hire one graduate journalist. Now, the Prime Minister was also right about Mike Hosking's employer NZME doing a deal with Facebook's owner Meta, which has been much more reluctant to negotiate with local media. But NZME's chief executive, Michael Boggs, told MPs at the Select Committee last week that deal won't last long. But what's happened since? Meta has not renewed after a year. Because I think they think this isn't going to happen. I'm interested that neither Google or Facebook have turned up today. And this week, coincidentally, NZME's annual profit plunged 46% to just $12.2 million as growing income from digital subscribers failed to offset further falls in that advertising revenue. Now, as is obvious, there are big vested interests clashing here between the under-pressure publishers and the highly profitable tech companies. But what is in the public interest? Well, speaking for the lobby group Better Public Media, media expert Dr Peter Thompson told the committee this. You know, the news sector supports the bill because they're in such difficult you know, commercial circumstances. It's understandable. If you're drowning, you know, a, a straw might look like an attractive thing to clutch at. We'd rather send a lifeboat. So what would that mean? I asked Dr Thompson about that and what he thought might and should happen next. I think there really is a crisis in the news media sector at the moment. In the newspaper sector alone, if you go back to 2001, they had about a 40% share of the overall advertiser spend, and that's come down to now less than 10%. So that's a 75% loss of, a, of an advertising market that in which they used to be a dominant player. So I don't think they're, over, they're overstating the, the crisis. Um, my question is whether or not the... Uh, a fair digital news bargaining bill is actually the best mechanism for providing some kind of relief for them. Mm. Well, it's modelled on or inspired by what's happened in Australia. We had on Media Watch, for example, Rod Sims, um, former boss at the Australian regulator, the ACCC. He said, yes, New Zealand should copy what we did. It's returning hundreds of millions to the Australian media. Go for it. Uh, so why shouldn't we? I, I think there's a number of problems with the Australian Act not least the fact that, that there's no guarantee that the revenue paid by the platforms to the news media will actually be reinvested in news production rather than shareholder dividends, or indeed that it goes into public interest types of news production. The other thing is that, that the, the larger players clearly benefit disproportionately. If the Fair Digital News Bargaining Bill really is intended to, to provide support across the entire sector, then I think the Australian model is a very poor one to copy. Mm, OK, so you said that pretty clearly in your submission and you told the committee that no clear mechanism to ensure that revenue would be invested in public interest journalism beyond what's currently provided. But, well, Television New Zealand is an example right now. They are saying they need to spend more than $100 million renovating their entire IT system to keep up with all the demand for TVNZ+. Shouldn't that be their call? Well, I, I've got no objection to TVNZ you know, investing in its news infrastructure, if that's what sustains it. I mean, the question is, on what principle are you going to get the platforms to support it? And in my view, the bill has misdiagnosed the nature of the market imbalance between the news sector and the online platforms. I mean, specifically, you know, the idea that, that somehow the platforms have co-opted or stolen the news and that's what they need to compensate the news media for, I think is a misreading of the actual market process and the value chains on which they operate. I mean, primarily, 
the platforms have benefited from, you know, A, you know, c c controlling our data and mass harvesting individual data so that that enables targeted advertising. Uh, and that's what's enabled them to capture such a large share of the overall advertising market. In my view, platforms ought to be compensating society as a whole you know, for the mass harvesting of our data and, indeed, for the harms that are inflicted by the operation of their business models. But, but wouldn't that be the scope of another part of legislation? If this is all about the fair bargaining for news and the platforms can easily point to the fact that their news is being circulated by platforms that contribute nothing to the cost of its generation, that seems fundamentally unfair. Uh, a bill to address that doesn't necessarily mean you couldn't address all the other harms these platforms might be doing? Well, I, I, think, I think there's two issues here. I, I see them as closely related, though. It's quite, rather hard to calculate the precise market value of hosting news and permitting sharing of news on third-party platforms. I mean, in some cases, the news media are actively promoting their, their news content on the platforms. Mm -hmm. There are different relationships between different news media and different platforms at different levels of the value chain. That's a more fundamental point about the, the, the way in which we, we f discover content in the digital environment. I think you could design a, 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 the bill in a much better way, such that not only did you support the news media, but you provided some kind of compensation you know, to society as a whole you know, for, for the harms inflicted by enabling the proliferation of disinformation, hate speech and harvesting our personal data. Um, but you've got to base the bill, therefore, on public service principles, not just market competition principles. If you do it on market competition principles and it goes to arbitration, I think in some cases we're going to find it very difficult for the news media to demonstrate clearly and objectively you know, that they're actually conferring greater value on the platforms than the platforms are actually conferring on them. But you have to be really, really clear about what you're asking the platforms to compensate the news media for. And that's why I would argue that there's a better argument that they ought to be compensating society as a whole, and that includes supporting the fourth estate. But doesn't that then mean that journalism, the news media, become further down the rung of, you know, people that need a bit of justice from the dominance of these media platforms? If the crisis of the news media is that acute, you know, 50 million into commercial news media, that really would help. Well, of course it would help. We had the Public Interest Journalism Fund, which, of course, put $55 million into the system over, over three or four years. Um, yeah, so that's gone, and this could replace it. A real practical, real-world benefit for the news media companies under pressure. Well, I think there's, there's a far superior option on the table, and ironically, it was actually considered by Cabinet before being disregarded. And, th and that would be a process of, of, of implementing some kind of a levy on digital advertising, which is roughly worth $1.8 billion a year. Um, you'd be generating as much money as the Public Interest Journalism Fund put in. I mean, if you, you put a 2.5% levy on, or a 3% levy, you'd be getting up to $50 million a year. You know, and I think that would be a far more elegant and, and in, indeed more transparent and, and, and fundamentally simpler model to implement, the one that relies on a, a very opaque process of, of you know, bilateral negotiations between news media and the platforms and then goes to a very, very convoluted arbitration process if they can't agree. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. So as you referred, the, the Cabinet paper for the bill 
uh, address two options. The first, a levy on digital platforms to be dispersed to news producers um, through a contestable, a bit like the Public Interest Journalism Fund, uh, but not funded the same way. The second thing was adoption of an international model imposing taxes on multinational media enterprises with revenue ring-fenced and allocated to domestic news media. So both those things considered, but not progressed because they decided to go with the fair digital news bargaining bill. Those sorts of things would be vigorously resisted by not just the likes of Google and Facebook, but, you know, the entire telecoms industry. Well, it depends how wide you implement a a levy. But if we only look at the digital advertising sector, I mean, it would be relatively straightforward to say, right, from now on, there's a certain proportion of, uh, of digital advertising turnover that we're going to require you to pay into a central pot. And many of those that might initially complain about it would soon find that they're actually benefiting in far greater terms from, from having that money redisbursed through the system. The key thing is, though, by implementing a levy model um, administered by an independent arm's-length entity like New Zealand On Air, then you can guarantee that that money gets reinvested in public interest news. And so a, so a broad-brush approach to this, where all kinds of digital revenues are required to, to contribute towards supporting a healthy fourth estate, is actually fairer and more equitable and much more difficult to argue in court that it treats any single company you know, unfairly. In fact, we, we happen to know that that's probably one of the reasons why the, the levy model initially wasn't considered, because if you imposed it only on, on Google and Meta slash Facebook, they'd argue that that was discrimination. And in your submission, or Better Public Media's uh, submission on the bill, uh, you noted that in a book published in 2017, Don't Dream It's Over, uh, you'd said uh, at that point $150 million would have been sufficient if, it, if the bill, if the levy had been introduced then, by now to cover the cost of both the public service media entity proposed, uh, ANZPM, as you mentioned, and provide a $50 million subsidy for the news media sector, which is around about the um, the three years' worth of the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Just saying. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> but you weren't the only ones just saying it. Uh, it was uh, something similar. It was in Green Party media policy around the same time, I think. Uh, new Zealand First 2017 election in their manifesto, uh, boosting the telco development levy uh, to $2 a month to subsidise non-commercial New Zealand content. Uh, it wants to make commercial broadcasters and international media uh, providers like Netflix pay that levy too. So New Zealand First, now part of the government, were on board with the idea of uh, you know levying the industry. Um, the, the thing I'd say is that if you, if you um, impose a, a, a levy on, on services such as uh, streaming services or telecommunications, it's very, very easy to pass that on to the consumer. I mean, if your internet bill is $100 and, and it becomes $101, I doubt very much whether we'd see riots in the street. And the arguments well, against... You would, you would see people angry, you know, look at the response from some people to the Public Interest Journalism Fund. They'd be saying, why the hell am I being against my will levied uh, to fund a news media I may not respect and think is biased and all the rest of it? It would not be uncontroversial. Among, amongst some some you know, constituencies of the public, anything's controversial. I mean, you can't capitulate to disinformation, though. 
it's, I think it's absolutely appalling that, that the options for the levy were disregarded partly because of concerns that, that this might, uh, might upset certain constituencies that thought that any kind of government-funded media must be intrinsically biased. And that's rather silly because it conflates the idea that, that just because something is, is organised through a statute that somehow this means that the, you know, the Minister of, of Media and Communication is going to be calling up the media and dictating the editorial line. And that's clearly not what it means. And I think it behoves the government to actually explain these things clearly. It's distinctly unhelpful when you actually have politicians trying to score political points by you know, labelling these sorts of schemes bribery. Yeah, that, the, the Cabinet paper did specifically refer to that, that the Public Interest Journalism Fund uh, had, um, had led to people questioning whether it had undermined the media's independence and uh, reliability. That's, that's certainly correct. So in the end, though, does this all come down to where all the different parties in this, the politicians, the media, and the industry and the platforms that believe the public interest lies? I mean, so better public media believes it lies in the provision and enhancement of public interest journalism. The media companies think it's their own survival because they do it. So if they can be financially sustainable, uh, leave it to them and they will create it because that's their business. Uh, But do you think the politicians and the government who will make the decision on this, whether the bill goes forward or not, do, do you think they have a similar notion that news media, fourth estate, is something that that needs to be assisted out of a a financial jam and that that they believe that some survival is is A in question and B should be guaranteed? Well, I I don't know what the current government's thinking is. I mean, the Minister for for Media and Communication in opposition said that she opposed the, uh, the Fair Digital News bargaining bill um, she may now be reconsidering, given that there's strong support from the media sector itself. Um, I, I think it would be very difficult, though, for the government simply to wash its hands and say we're not going to do anything. I, I think there's a number of serious flaws with the current bill, and I, and I think it would, would problematically foreclose far better policy opportunities, you know, such as implementing a broad-based levy, which would actually be far more elegant, more transparent, and, and be just as functional as, as any kind of non-transparent bargaining between the platforms and the news media. Yeah, this was a, a Labour uh, initiative, of course, but introduced too late for them to progress it themselves. They lost the election. It would seem weird if a, a national opposition that has unpicked so much of what the former government has done would progress one of their bills. Do you think if it does go through and the government would want to see it as their bill, change the name, rewrite it fairly radically, is that the most likely thing? Uh, other than just extinguishing the bill I, as it exists? I don't know how likely it is, but it wouldn't surprise me if the government did want to tweak the bill, and I, I think they should. I think they've got a great opportunity to put a good piece of legislation forward. I mean, if if they do have to, to proceed and they don't want to go down the levy route, then at least I think they should make sure that some of the money generated through these deals is allocated to the smaller players. And I think you, there's also a need to make sure that some of the money is allocated to distinct you know, sub-genres of news, such as local government reporting or you know, minority interest reporting. Because otherwise, I, I, I just worry that the larger players are going to soak up you know, the best deals with the, with the platforms and the little players are really just going to be left to flounder. So as I said in, in, in the select committee, I mean, the, if, if you offer a drowning person a straw, they'll clutch at it. But I, I think we really need to send a lifeboat. The levy lifeboat would rescue a lot more people.
That was Dr Peter Thompson, who's the chair of the Better Public Media Lobby Group and an associate professor at Victoria University of Wellington's School of Media and Communication. Recently, some pretty big things have been going on in our Asia-Pacific backyard, but it was the event on the doorstep of Morning Report's correspondent Kerry-Ann Walsh which made much more news here this week, though the epic era's tour by Taylor Swift wasn't Kerry-Ann's thing. Just between you and I, OK, I'll say it very quietly, I didn't get it. I didn't understand the whole thing. I didn't get the Swifty Tay-Tay rah-rah business. But while Kerry-Ann Walsh said she didn't get it, the spin-off's Duncan Grieve did, he said he saw pop culture history in Melbourne, the most powerful pop star in decades at the peak of her powers, making songs that were mostly consumed individually by her phones, moving for almost 100,000 people packed into the MCG. And while Duncan Grieve was one of thousands who flew across the ditch, motivated by FOMO, fear of missing out, there was also a fair bit of anger about missing out among Swifties who didn't get to go, and the media here have really milked that. On the Friday before last, ZB's Heather Duplessy Allen asked how come Taylor didn't turn up in Auckland. The Eden Park boss says the park's resource consent cost us a Taylor Swift tour stop. Now, Eden Park has got two Coldplay concerts, three Pink concerts also booked for 2024, which takes up five of the six concert slots. Well, never mind Pink and the band that had a smash hit with Yellow, Kiwi Swifties wanted to hear Red and all the other hits from Taylor Swift's back catalogue on home soil. And Eden Park's boss said it was because consents limited the stadium to just six shows a year. Um, we need to get this sorted. We're missing out on premium content at our national stadium. But back on ZB last Sunday, the weekend collective show host Tim Roxburgh wasn't convinced. Bollocks. We're just not big enough. She's, got, what, she's um, generated $1.2 billion in economic value in Melbourne alone. I don't think she was ever going to come to New Zealand. And just the next day, his fellow ZB host Andrew Dickens said there's no way that Tay Tay's big stage show wouldn't have fitted into Eden Park. Most other people are doing it. Wait till you see what Coldplay's bringing later in the year. What about you too? Look at the tours that they've brought here, from the claw to the big widescreen Joshua Tree show. Taylor's show wasn't too big for any New Zealand venue, but that's what was said. And when ZB's stablemates at the Herald rushed that out as a story, it quoted Nick Sortner as saying this. Eden Park has proven it can accommodate any stage or production and 60,000 fans. Adding, he has no doubt, the venue would have sold out multiple shows. But back in June last year, when New Zealand was omitted from the schedule for the Eras Tour, the same Herald reported that a well-placed but unnamed insider had said that stage size could be a massive reason. And NZME digital and social content creator Megan Sager told the Herald, after seeing the setup herself in the US... There is no way she could fit it in any of our stadiums. And the bummer was, only about 52,000 bums on seats would fit in Eden Park, which, if true, would make the after-the-fact claims this week about Eden Park concert consents and resident noise objections a bit of a moot point. But it was a hot talking point for ZB on Talkback that day. Don't you hate it when a small group of people stops the country from achieving what it wants to do? And isn't this the story of New Zealand? Somebody complains about a snail, we don't build a dam. And then the Prime Minister got dragged into it too. Chris Luxon said that, uh, you know, we're, we're insular, we're wet, and we're not open for business. And Andrew Dickens' listeners pointed the finger of blame even at the cyclists. You're so right, Andrew. New Zealand is ruled by minorities now. 
For instance, the stopping of the Basin Reserve flyover by about 10 people and the profligate waste of money on cycleways in Wellington, again, to appease a small but powerful minority. And snails, dams, cycleways, Taylor Swift, noise, 10.30, ah, ah, oh, I don't want to live. We know how he feels. And the day after that, last Wednesday, the Herald had this headline. Residents voice overwhelming support for pop superstar concert. More than 93% of Eden Park's neighbours do want the Auckland Stadium to host at least one Taylor Swift concert, the story said. But what's the point of that when the Eras Tour is underway across the ditch and definitely not coming here? While the Taylor Swift horse had bolted, recent reports of a possible waterfront stadium for sports events would have been front of mind for the Eden Park Trust Board in commissioning that survey, and a horse that they're keen to see confined to the stables or even sent to the glue factory if possible. Stories referring to a strong desire for Eden Park to host more concerts and not be restricted by consenting processes certainly couldn't hurt that effort. Back on News Talk ZB, though, Andrew Dickens' callers certainly reckoned that big gigs were good, among them Matthew. I saw Iron Maiden when I was 16 years old. I'll never forget it. Um, and I just felt connected with everybody that night and, and left so happy. We all need to be brought together because everyone's divided and crazy and all over the show. And these, these concerts, believe it or not, have a um, kind of therapeutic effect and there's mm. this contagious energy. And here at Media Watch, we wonder if Matthew's contagious Iron Maiden energy couldn't be a solution of sorts. Media Watch's solution? A Taylor Swift Iron Maiden reunion double bill with matinee performances at Eden Park for locals who like a quiet night. And evening shows at the Waterfront Stadium built on time and under budget by, say, 2035 for those who like the nightlife and a bit of noise. Well, that's all we have for you on the media this weekend, but we'll be back with more at about 9.30 next Wednesday night on Nights with Emile Donovan and Midweek Media Watch. And then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.